0: a lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Quinn, last week you had sick kids. This week you're sick and your husband's out of town. How are you doing? No, he got,
0: you know what, he got back in town last night. He he arrived yes. at three in the morning. I was so glad because I do not sleep well alone in the house with the kids. It gives me so much anxiety. Really? And I think it – yeah, well, I think it, it actually dates back to a couple of years ago. I was alone in the house with them, and in the middle of the night, a mirror in our house, a piece of artwork that has a mirror in it, the mirror fell out of the artwork and shattered. So imagine that you're home, alone with your kids, and you hear downstairs breaking glass. What would you do if that happened? If it was the middle of the night and you heard a noise like that? Okay. Because I can tell you that what I did – What did you what's do? What's crazy. I, you know, I just closed the
1: door and put a piece of furniture in front of it. <laughs> I just didn't want to go check. I was so scared. I I think I would be like – I would have that anxiety in our monologue of like, it's nothing. It's nothing. You should go check. No, you shouldn't go check. What would Quinn say? What would your mom say? Like I have like all of these internal thoughts of – what is the best thing I can do? I probably would end up checking. For me, it's more the like, did I remember to lock the door? Did I did I remember? And then the amount of times I've like gotten out of bed, like gotten so cozy in my covers and like get out of bed to test the door. And nine times mm-hmm. out of 10, it's locked. Well, imagine you
0: heard a noise like that, like a, I don't know, a bump in or a, a crash or a shattered glass in the night. And imagine you, like me, maybe don't do much about it, and you find out later... That it's real. That, that
1: that it's real. That was something scary. I mean, I think that's every person's fear, which is why we go down that anxiety rabbit hole of should we check, should we stay? You just don't know what the right answer is at that time. Because if you go and check on it, and if it is someone... Ooh, ooh! It's so, it's so unsettling. It's so unsettling. You, and here's the truth: you might not
0: be the person in danger, but right. when you hear a scary noise in the middle of the night, someone else might be in danger. And in in the case of the story we're about to tell, someone else might be getting murdered. I'm Quinlan Posner, and I'm Carrie Ipema, and this is Crime of a Lifetime.
1: We want to take you to Olathe, Kansas, and I'm going to set the scene in this little town at the time. It's a suburb of Kansas City, so it's a suburb of a big city, Um, and at the time in the 80s when our story is taking place, there's only about 37,000 residents, so it's a pretty small town, and listen, I don't want to say there's churches everywhere, but I, I am going to be clear. This is a Bible Belt place. Like, there are churches. What is the
0: church to Starbucks ratio?
1: Oh, well, this is the 80s, baby. (laughs) There's not a lot of Starbucks on every corner. I would say (laughs) they're winning. They're winning. The churches are winning. You heard it here first. In Olathe, Kansas, the churches. Jesus
0: won Starbucks zero.
1: I'll keep score this whole time. Yeah, I think we're going to be looking for Jesus a lot, this story, honestly. Okay, so it is February 28th, 1982, and... This scene takes place in a duplex, which is, I don't know if you know the definition of a duplex, but it is a it home is. that is taken up by two separate families. Some might call it a two-family home. Okay, so the home is split down the middle, and the two families are these two couples, and they share a wall. And at around 2 o'clock in the morning, Gail Berkstrand wakes up, to our biggest fear, which is the sound of noises, like thuds coming through the shared bedroom wall. It's like someone is banging on the floor with their fist, or she even says someone... It sounds like someone's being thrown around next door.
0: I mean, but to be clear, even though it's very scary to wake up to these noises, it is not in her home. It's in the next door home. Um, But she's still... I mean, that's pretty close. That's
1: close to home. So... (laughs) Quinn, that is the she, definition of close to home. Like, <laughs> yeah, very much. Apt, apt anal- analogy, Quinn. She
0: also has a baby. So she wakes up her husband, who's home, Richard, and she's like, Are You hearing these noises? You know, she's scared. Do you think um, Richard
1: is like, No, you're overreacting and falls asleep? Or do you think Richard no,
0: is. No, you know what Richard does? He probably pushes the uh, dresser in front of the door. <laughs> and then they're like, phew, And then they go back to sleep. <laughs> It's a pro move. No, he doesn't do that. But they do end up somehow, even though it's scary, maybe it's that the noises stop. So you do that thing where you're like, did I even hear anything? Meh. Like once it stops, they stop being scared and they are able to go back to sleep. I'm sure breathing exercises were abound. I'd be counting my breaths so I could get back to sleep. Count your breaths, count your sheep. They wake up an hour later and there's another banging sound. This time it's at their front door. And that's scary, because 3 a.m., somebody knocking at your door, that doesn't feel No, good.
1: you don't. That's not, that's not the alarm clock I want, okay? I do not no. want that alarm.
0: They do go to the door. They do open it. As a team, maybe it's less scary. Melinda Harmon, their neighbor who lives in the duplex, is there, and she is bruised. She has a bruise on her cheek, and her nightgown has blood on it. And she just looks like she's not... She's not okay. She looks
1: like she's in shock. She's seen something. Not only has she seen something, she's experienced the worst thing imaginable. She says that while she is sleeping in her bed with her husband, two men break into her house. They beat her husband, David. And... They've left, and she's in shock, and she thinks David might be dead, but she just immediately went over to the neighbors. So the neighbors are hearing this information. They call the police right away. Do you think they would feel so bad about, like, hearing something at 2 and not I mean, I think retrospect, yes. But my my imagination or how I guess I think that would go is if someone comes to your house and they're confronted with blood all over themselves, I think the first thing you do is just... Crisis management. You're calling 911. Into, You're like going into yeah. crisis mode.
0: I would feel so bad though if you accidentally let slip. You were like, oh, we I did heard hear that. that.
1: I was going to actually ah. say you were being loud tonight. No, they wouldn't say that. That would be aggressive. No. So then Melinda goes, actually, in addition to the police, can you call a friend of mine, Mark Mangelsdorf? And the police show up and then Mark comes right away.
0: So the police arrive at the Harmons' house, and they check out the scene. It doesn't look like anybody broke in. They can't find any, you know, doors that have been messed with or windows broken. But then they go upstairs, and it's a, it's scene. a real horror scene. There's, just, there's blood everywhere. It's down through the hallway into the main bedroom, and the bedroom is especially awful. There's blood. Blood on the wooden headboard, on the side table. It's all over the sheets and the carpet. And what they see is that someone has taken a drawer and pulled it out, and there was a jar of keys. Yeah, they took the lid off, so they don't know if anything's missing necessarily, but it does look like someone rifled through the Harmon's things. David Harmon is still on the bed. He's on the left side, covered in blood, and not moving.
1: It's very clear that he is dead. When the police enter the scene, their first thought is that he's been shot in the head. That's that's how destroyed his face is. But then they realize that he's been beaten to death with a blunt object, which harkens back to the two in the morning thudding the Bergstrands heard. Which, by the way, like to be <sighs>
0: scared of a noise and be like, is that someone breaking in? And then later be like, No, that was someone breaking a person. I mean, that's the sound of someone breaking someone's face. That's so scary. So terrible.
1: And they share a bedroom wall, so they were like, I mean, feet away from this happening. It is such a gruesome scene that the police and investigator on the scene, a detective, actually told Oxygen snapped that he couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman. That's that's how it's just like it. It is such a rageful act, and it feels so personal at this moment, right?
0: I just was, like, thinking about, like, the fact that this guy was asleep one minute and then being beaten to death the next minute and how we don't know, like, how that went. Like, which is to say, like, did the first blow land on him in such a way where he woke up and had the time to be, like, cognizant of what was happening?
1: Quinn, they look into it and there are no defensive wounds on him. So Ugh, that's
0: – that actually gives me hope that he died. I hope quickly. Right, the, the,
1: yes, yes, yes. And what's crazy – And that they kept
0: beating him, but he was dead? Because I just hate the image of him, like, uh, like to knowing what's to. happening. I mean, and then Oy. keep
1: in mind, all while this is happening, Melinda is right next to him. C- can see it all. I don't know if they've like tied her down or if they've restrained her in some way, but she is like up close and personal to this moment. And what's even crazier to me is they they have there's this jar full of keys. This like random jar full of keys and they know exactly mm-hmm. what key they're looking for, which oh, feels yeah, they crazy. must have been very
0: intentional there and it's like feels very targeted and specific.
1: Totally. And so according to Melinda, what she tells investigators is that she comes to, she wakes up to two masked invaders. She describes them both as black. And she comes to realizing that these two guys are beating up her husband with a crowbar. And they beat him up. They beat him to death.
0: And then they drag her downstairs and she hears one of them say to the other, I think you hit him too hard. You may have killed him. So even the the people that did this are aware of like,
1: crowbar thing getting pretty out of control? I mean, again, if you can't tell who the person is, you've taken it too. I mean, I don't even want to say that because I don't think, I mean, like, it's taken too far if there's a crowbar in your hand. There's not too far. There's no such thing as too far. If you walk into someone's house with a crowbar, you've taken it too far. There's
0: no moderate crowbar attacks.
1: So, They're this, like, mysterious jar of keys. The one ring that is missing is the key to the bank where David works. And -hmm. apparently that's what this whole thing has been for, is they beat David to death for it. That seems so stupid,
0: by the way, because it feels like if it's me and I'm trying to get this key, I'd go into the house, sure, with a weapon, sure, wake them up and threaten them. But it... From Melinda's point of view, you're waking killing up and who's already them? like dead essentially. It's like, why don't you just ask
1: us where the thing is that you want? See if we'll hand it to you. And it doesn't make sense because also if they're killing because they're afraid of a witness, you know, testifying against them with this key, why didn't they kill Melinda? Why did they let Melinda go free? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And so once Melinda I guess hands over the key or confirms that this is exactly the key that the men are looking for, they just sucker punch her in the face, which knocks her well, out. Well, it seems like if her husband just
0: got beat to death with a crowbar, she really got off easy. She got, she got, off got really punched easy. once in the head? Yes. And so I mean, I don't mean to make light of losing your husband uh, and well, watching it, again, him get beat to death, I just, but this this the killer's <sighs> MO so far is baffling. That's what I'm trying to say. It doesn't
1: make sense, right? They come in, they beat someone who apparently didn't wake up, was not threatening them. There's no self-defensive wounds. Melinda then hands over the key that they are looking for, and they they have a crowbar in hand, but they thought, you know what? Actually, we took the other one way too far, so let's just balance it out. We're going to punch her in the face, and that punch seemingly knocks her out for the next hour. She comes to, she sees what's happening. She runs to the next door neighbors. She knocks, and that's where we are. So
0: like we said, there are some things here that don't make a ton of sense. But of course, the police, they are seeing Melinda Harmon. She's a victim. She's just lost her husband. So they're really hearing her out. They're really taking this story at face value. Yeah,
1: I also want to be very clear in Olathe. It doesn't seem like this is a common thing here. I mean, this is pretty out of the ordinary for this little town. And we've talked about this before, where a lot of times police will enter these situations and sort of not call upon maybe Kansas City, which maybe deals with more murders or more homicides or things Mm -hmm. like that. So this small town, everybody knows one another. And so they're listening to her story. They're taking notes. They're believing her.
0: Yeah. They're doing the next course of action that you would do if this is the story you were given. And that is that they send some folks to the bank because it sounds like if these guys got the key, maybe that's where they're going to end up. So they're going to surveil the bank And they're also going to get some tracking dogs. And hopefully these tracking dogs can find a scent that the killer's left behind and trace that to somewhere.
1: Yeah, but in addition, when they're doing these next steps in the investigation, I think at that point they're able to look more closely at Melinda's story and say, hmm, there's some of these things don't make sense. Just like how we said. Because they have to keep going over it. Yeah. They have to keep going over the same story. And it's that kind of thing where. um, That doesn't make sense. They just punched her. I mean, the punch is a weird thing, right? So she says that they sucker punched her in the face and it knocked her out. They're looking at the bruise on her face and that doesn't necessarily add up. Right. I mean, they they see this little bruise. I mean, maybe she eats a lot of bananas. Maybe she doesn't bruise that easily. But they're they're questioning: Is that enough force? Is that bruise enough to knock you out? I don't know. I mean, again, mm. that's sort of a hard thing to determine because people really don't want to test what's what um, strength. <laughs> they're not of punch. like come here, let us yeah, knock think, you out on the other yeah. side and see. I don't what think what it they have like. like the scientific theory to do that. Um, and then, like we said, it seems really weird that they took the keys to the front door of the bank. Which, again, what's weird about that is they took the keys to the front door. It's not like they took the vault keys. It's not like they took, mm-hmm. and they didn't even ask him, "Hey, where are the vault keys?" They just took the front door keys. Like that doesn't make very much sense. But we've seen we've seen dopey we've seen criminals, dopey criminals dopey before. Criminals. There's a
0: lot of good Disney movies about dopey criminals. So adult. you know. As a Disney adult, I'm sure Carrie's seen it all, and <laughs> she knows that that could be the case, right? Just some some bumbling guys, no. But what happens is that the detectives look at this crime scene, and they just keep seeing holes. more and more holes. I think the one that really stuck out to me was the blood spatter. Yeah. Again, I'm no Dexter, but I watched all the episodes, and so, so you I think-, think I am. Or, okay, I am. Um, I'm an expert. And let me explain something to you. The blood spatter was all over the sheets in the bed, including the pillows, including Melinda's pillow. Now, you'll recall, Carrie, in the story, where's Melinda during the attack? She
1: is supposedly laying next to him. So seemingly, the blood splatter should leave sort of like an outline of her body on the bed, right? Exactly. Exactly. And it doesn't. There's way more blood on the
0: bed where she should have been, and there's way less blood on her nightgown than should be there if she was right next to David while he was getting hit. In fact, the way that it spattered on her, it almost suggests that she was standing in the room near him, not lying in the bed next to him.
1: I don't like it. I don't like it. And then we got the dogs and they catch this scent from the crime scene that is from neither Melinda nor David. There's a third scent they pick up, and they can't account for it. So the dogs follow the scent down the street to a dumpster, and the dumpster, sadly, has already been emptied. So that's a bummer. That kind of comes up fruitless. But what's very interesting is that the dumpster is in a very special location. It is at Mark Mangelsdorf's apartment complex. Do you remember him? He's the guy that right after Melinda calls the police, she calls him. And I don't know if you remember Mark Mangelsdorf from earlier, but he's that guy that after Melinda goes to her neighbors and says, hey, after you call the police, do me a favor and call this guy, Mark Mangelsdorf. It's not looking great.
0: And he arrived first. I mean, he arrived, I think, shortly after the police. And when he arrived, the police saw this guy. He showed up. And you know what? He looked like he'd just taken a shower. He looked squeaky clean. So. Great. I guess he got called that there was an emergency in the middle of the night and he wanted to look his best depending on maybe there was going to be press there and he
1: hopped in the shower. Or maybe he's one know. of those weird people that can't show up anywhere unshowered. You know, there's people that wake up and they have to shower. Like it's it's almost a um, Ma- Maybe compulsion. he didn't
0: shower and he just uses really uh, gross hair product.
1: Maybe they his called hair just him freshly wet. showered, so I assume there was a scent. I okay. assume there was like an herbal essence scent. A lot of Dove surrounding. A lot of like Dial. I, he's an he's he's an Irish spring soap guy. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't. I use Dove bar soap. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say that we use the same soap.
0: Well, no matter what soap Mark used, the police are at this point asking themselves, "Who is this guy, and what is his relationship with Melinda?" And maybe a better question: What's his relationship with? the newly
1: deceased David. Mark is a very close family friend, and he's a very good friend of David Harmon, who is now dead, as Quinn said. So all three of them, David, Melinda, and Mark, they grew up in a very devout Christian denomination known as the Church of the Nazarene.
0: Yeah, and that's important because this really shapes their lives. You Um, can't separate the church from who they are
1: as a people, from who they are as people. No way.
0: Not at all. This is culturally. This is academically. This is – It's their whole life. This is their whole life. Nazarenes are very, very strict about relationships. So if you are in a relationship, you're not supposed to kiss unless you are married. You're not supposed to kiss. I mean, so lots of sexual tension brewing in that community would be what I would guess. Sexual and tension super- or
1: repression, I would also say. <laughs> say tension
0: That's and repression. Right. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Um, And they're, as far as wanting to get a higher education, they're like, we have our own colleges. So the college is connected to the church. And when I watched the snapped about this case, yeah. it made it sound like even when you were college age, if you are a Nazarene and you're there at the college, you are not to do anything. It is footloose times a million. (laughs) You think no dancing is the worst? How about no dancing? How about no dating? How about no playing cards? How about the teachers trying to make sure kids aren't doing things like go to the movies? So I feel like
1: The amount of structure. You could look at it as a
0: total snooze fest, but you
1: can also say it's a snooze fest that is also weirdly a powder keg. I know, anytime I hear these kind of moments, it's like, you know, someone's going to lash out. You know, someone's going to overcorrect in a very intense way. So, David and Melinda, the couple, right, they meet at Nazarene Bible Camp and they get married at the old maid ages of 20 and 19. They want to kiss. (laughs) They just want to make out, man. They just want to touch tongues. That's what they want to do. And everybody looks at them like they're the perfect couple. Now, I want to be clear. When we say everybody looks at them like the perfect couple, my interpretation of this religion is anyone who has been married is the perfect couple to them. I don't know how perfect. I think they're
0: also sort of blonde. Like, they're very attractive.
1: (laughs) They're attractive. David, at this point, is 25. So they've been married about five years. And- People really love David, you know? He's kind of this really smart, nice guy. He gives back to his community, whether that's of his own volition or the church's persistence, I cannot say. Um, he volunteers for the food drive. He tutors people. Um, yeah, he's yeah, going to be and like Melinda, and Melinda and like his really, relationship. She married well, I guess, is what I'll say.
0: And yeah, but he, he loves her. He worships he her. He loves, loves, loves Not before Melinda, God, though, and- of
1: course. My God. Oh, please. No, 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 never. It's a <laughs> commandment.
0: But Melinda's more the outgoing type. He's more the quiet guy. And she gets a job at the Nazarene University as a secretary to the dean of student life. And that's how she ends up meeting the student body president (gasps) at this university, 21-year-old Mark Mangelsdorf. Wow. Come on down.
1: There he is.
0: I know we talked about how great David is, how well loved he is, and I think like it's important to say Mark is similar. He's really he's no slouch. He's the younger David. So, he's a freshman. David's older, already done school, but now David having done all these great things, Mark is also being seen in the community as a success and sort of a, a their golden boy. And Melinda greets him every time he shows up at her office and they become friendly.
1: So Melinda hits it off with Mark, right? He's this like outgoing nice guy she's outgoing they're laughing you know they're having a good time but they're just friends to be clear everybody they are just friends and so melinda uses this opportunity to introduce mark to her husband david she thinks they're gonna hit it off they're gonna be great friends and they do she's totally right they are very much alike they're both gonna be successful smart handsome kind and they like to do manly things (laughs) why are you laughing
0: I don't know. You're just like, they're going to be smart, successful, handsome, kind. They're, that's their thing. That's their they're thing. they two guys that are going to be those things, and so they're friends. I feel like it's, <laughs> it's like so it. hard. i got to like, okay. I gotta
1: say, I would be hard-pressed <laughs> to find someone who'd be like, what a real jerk about any of these people, because I feel like in the church, they're just like, everybody's kind. Everybody's nice. Right. Everybody's going to be successful, right? So um, they do what men do. I don't know if Quinn, if you know this, and I know it's a female friendship here, but I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. They start to play sports mm. together because that's what men oh. do. They play for ball. they play sport ball, more specifically floor hockey and racquetball, which again, can you come up with a wider sport? Just gonna say it <laughs> <right now>. lacrosse, <laughs> ah, dang, you got me there, I did x, you did it um. He becomes a surrogate mentor to Mark and they have this, you know, big brother, little brother kind of relationship.
0: And everybody's like, I can see the resemblance because you're both smart and kind. <laughs> <laughs> I just want one all- I just
1: want one <laughs> member of the church to be like, actually, Mark, kind of a doofus. Like didn't love him. <laughs> <laughs> I <Didn't> love
0: them. <laughs> they're spending a ton of time together at uh, David and Melinda's house. They're having like dinners together. They're they're a group
1: of besties. Do you think it's similar mm. to like when I hang out with you and Matt? Um, Like I'm just curious. Yes. I think it's the exact same
0: relationship. So I think we should really <laughs> keep our eyes open as to where this is headed, everybody.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <That's->
0: <laughs> Red
1: flags. Red flags. But, you know, like, you know, everybody needs the third wheel single friend. And Mark is that for them. And I am that for you and Matt. And Carrie is
0: that for me and Matt. Well, (laughs) similar to you, I think if you go by our house late at night, you'll see Carrie's bike uh, chained outside. And if you went by David and Melinda's house at night, you're going to see Mark's car parked even as late as buckle your (gasps) seatbelts, because this is a community that does not kiss or go to the movies.
1: 11 o'clock. What? I leave yes. always so at your house are... at 10.58, and you know that. That's and just because you like to sleep later. at 10.
0: That's, that's right. <laughs> she stays alone for the last hour 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 for the last 58 the minutes, Quinn. Relax. <laughs> but I think in this community, the fact that he's at their yeah. house all the time, he's staying so late, I think people are noticing. I think there's a little bit of um, – I don't know if it's gossip, but people are like – Hmm. That's a that's a lot of time. Um,
1: Shouldn't that's Mark a lot of time. be courting his future wife instead that's of right. hanging out with but these two can't. jokers?
0: He can't. He's spending too much time with this married couple. It's giving me throuple vibes.
1: Platonic thruple. Yes. Ooh, my favorite kind. Of course, <laughs> my favorite kind. <laughs> Here we are. We have this attractive platonic thruple, and now one of them is dead. I don't think it takes... What could a, go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Also, I don't think it takes a genius to look at this with one of them dead and a possible romantic motive to go, hmm, maybe we should look into this more, <laughs> right? I mean, mm-hmm. Mark and Melinda yeah. are pretty darn close, and and they can tell that they clearly have a close relationship. I mean, she he's the first person she calls when he's dead.
0: And he takes a shower and runs right over. So it well, he doesn't yeah, want to it, her, it doesn't apparently. look great. Well, so then you have the story that the right. friends tell about what happened that day, the day before the night where David was killed. And what happens is that Mark and David usually showed up together for church floor hockey. Mm. You know, and they come dance, as a pair. But can certainly
1: play with shafts <laughs> and balls. Sorry, yeah, and balls. so
0: true. And balls and balls. Don't forget the balls. <laughs> Usually they would show up as pals at the same time. But on this day, David shows up alone and everybody's like, Oh, where's Mark? And he's like, Oh, Mark wasn't feeling good. He stayed home, meaning his home, meaning he is home with my wife, Melinda, and I am here. And he seems distracted, disjointed. He's, I think he yeah. typically shows up to these games in really good spirits. He's being super like competitive, kind of of a, right? He wants to Yeah, win. and like a team leader, right? Like he comes in and he's like the cheerleader and the player. He's having a great time. He's getting everybody. And he just is off. And what's weirder is that he goes, I got to be out at this time. And that's 30 minutes earlier than they would usually end. And he's saying it in this way that he's they're agitated. like, do you have to be? He needs to
1: like leave now,
0: now. Like, why is he even there? It's like, David, just go. But David is like, no, no, let's play. They start to play. And then that time approaches. They arrive at that time. And he's like, got to go. And they're like, but we're tied. We have to do a tiebreaker. And you can tell he's like, I got to get out of here. So instead of playing competitively to do anything with that tiebreaker, he starts letting shots go in so that The other team will just win and he can leave. (laughs) Yeah, they're just, all this is just to say that the friends are definitely clocking this behavior as bizarre coming from David and that something was going on and then he rushed the hell out of there to get home and the people he was going home to were his wife and his friend Mark.
1: And now David's dead and here the police tracking dogs are and they are taking them straight to Mark's apartment. So the police arrive at Mark's house, and they ask to search his home, and Mark wholeheartedly agrees. He acts like he has nothing to hide. He opens his doors and lets the police look throughout his entire home. They look in his vacuum cleaner, which,
0: wow, that's that's good. You know, good looking. I wouldn't have thought that, but now I will. Well, it's now um, you're, you're what, not they... a
1: police officer. You're not a detective,
0: uh, despite what you Yet. think.
1: Yet. That's a good point. Very good point, Gwen.
0: Well, they look in the vacuum. They look at the bottom of the shower. They find some traces of blood. So they're going to keep that for further testing because who knows? It could be his. They bag it and tag it. And then the next thing they find is like the big reveal. It's what they've really been looking for, I think. They find letters between Mark and Melinda. Now, these letters, I don't know the contents of them. I know that they're signed Love Melinda I know that when the police see them, they say, These are love letters. Yep. We found them. These are love letters. Yeah. And when they confront Mark and Melinda, they're like, We found these, you guys. We know about your relationship. They're right away like, Those are just letters. There's nothing sexy in them. We have a close relationship. It's not weird.
1: Yeah. I I do think it's a really interesting thing where they don't deny these letters. In fact, they double mm-hmm. down and say, Hey, no, actually, we're just friends and – Based on this religion, I I assume it's probably not very sexy because that's super sinful.
0: Sure, I would say that if you and Matt were writing letters between mm-hmm. the two of you, okay. fine, okay, write those letters, sign them. It'd with be love. weird. It'd be weird. But if you ca- no, no, let me tell you where the line is for me. Keeping the letters in like a shoebox, like if Matt wrote you a letter and said, "Love, Matt." Great. You write him a letter and say, love, Carrie. Great. One of you is keeping those letters in a shoebox. That's where it becomes some pervy pen pal shit that is a red flag for me.
1: And I, I'm i going to be watching my back. What I love about it, Quinn, is my stuff is currently stored at your house in a storage unit that you actually have access to the keys for. So what I love <laughs> I'm about this find, imaginary thing I'm is that I'm hiding it right under your nose. <laughs> And I don't like it. As much as Melinda and Mark are denying this, the police are not convinced at all, just like we all aren't. We're, none of us are convinced here. No. Um so the police are thinking this bank robber theory is a crock of nothing. Um, and they're pretty sure that two strangers did not break in and kill David. And I want to be very clear here. Melinda has said early on that it was two black men that came in, which, again, I just we don't know what happened. But I'm going to tell you, if it's not true, Melinda, that's a really shit thing. It's just sh- and we'll get into it later. But I just have to say, if she's making up this story, she's putting people's lives in danger. Anyway, so all eyes are on Mark and Melinda's relationship. They have motive. They have reason why they would want David dead. But what they don't have is hard evidence, okay? Because DNA – this is in the 80s. DNA is not very advanced. So they really can't pin the blood that they find at Mark's apartment to David, right? And they don't have a murder weapon. And all the fingerprints that
0: they might have, it's any of that, or Mark's hairs. It's like, yeah, of course. He like practically lived with them.
1: So they're doing everything they can. He was there till 11 o'clock at night, Quinn.
0: <laughs> 11 people. Way past curfew. So the police are doing anything else they can do. Uh, interviewing people, 300 interviews. Uh, investigating, they spend... Over 2,000 hours. A lieutenant at the Olathe Police Department tells a newspaper that this case is the biggest one we've ever had. It's about twice as much time as we devoted to other
1: homicides. Well, that makes sense to me because we have sex, Hmm. we have love triangle, or we have a love tryst, a little affair. We have murder. You gotta wonder. I don't know. I would call this case no sex, no drugs, no rock and roll. But all murder. (laughs) all murder. But all murder. That's true. The police, they are absolutely convinced that Mark and Melinda know the truth of what happened that night. There's no question in their mind, but what they lack is evidence. It's interesting, just as a side note, at Mark's funeral, which happened shortly after his murder, um, Melinda is there. She's openly weeping. Mark is there, obviously. He's mourning his friend. And there are some eyewitness accounts that say that Mark went over to Melinda and whispered something in her ear, and we don't know what he said. But what we do know is after all these interviews, after all this time spent on the case, the case goes cold. And also, Mark and Melinda go their separate ways. So it's all just a big question as to why. Right. So
0: let's unpack that after we get back from this break. Wow. So one thing I think is pretty wild is that while the police are looking into yeah. Mark and Melinda, that's not hush-hush. No. People, people know that they're being questioned. People know that there's suspicions. There's rumors. But Mark, who was always one of the golden boys in this community, keeps his status as that Yeah. with the Nazarenes.
1: And it's a small town, too. So these people are gossiping, but he's still walking around completely unscathed by this.
0: Oh, completely. Um, One thing that is really interesting, though, is that whatever you think at this point, whether you think Mark and Melinda had anything to do with David's death, after this happens, after David dies, they do go their own ways. So sharing this experience whether that was as two perpetrators or as two uh, people adjacent to this person that died and and loved him either way it, it doesn't bring them together it pushes them apart and after he dies they that's it
1: which feels weird to me here they are in this like three person thruple mm-hmm. and one of them right? dies and they don't even use each other for comfort which I think is really interesting Like, regardless of if you think they have a romantic relationship at all, the fact that they just leave is shocking to me.
0: It is. It is. And Melinda ends up moving back to Ohio, to Columbus, where she grew up. And she doesn't talk to David's family anymore, who were her in-laws. She just breaks contact. Maybe it's too painful. She starts a new life She has $40,000 from David's death, from the insurance. So she has like a little bit of money to get going to get started. Obviously, that's not um, something we would talk about in terms of motive. $40,000 is not a ton. Um, But in the next 19 years, she builds another life for herself. She ends up marrying a cosmetic dentist and she has a couple of
1: kids. Probably, and I'm going to guess, a grateful smile. smile. Yeah, that is exactly what I thought would happen there, too. Meanwhile, Mark Mangelsdorf, he stays in Kansas until graduation. He's got to graduate from school. He's a student body president, after all. Um, which, by the way, he graduates a few months after the murder. So again, all these rumors are circulating. He's keeping his status So much so that he wins the Pioneer Image Award, which is for the student who best exemplified Christ on campus. And what's crazy about this moment is he's awarded this, and he gets an entire student body standing ovation. Two years after graduation, he goes to Harvard. He gets his master's in business. Like I said, smart success kind? question mark? He then meets a woman. He gets married to her and they have three kids. They move around a little bit and ultimately he lands in New York and he works as a marketing executive. I'm picturing Don Draper, Mad Men vibes. Um, but like Don Draper, like Don, like Don he ends up getting divorced. got through those
0: ladies. I got to ask,
1: the Nazarene, they don't seem like a chill religion to be To be all for divorce. And he gets a divorce later on in his life, which I think is just Hmm. interesting. Maybe he's separated himself a little bit from the church. Um, We don't know, but that's sort of speculative. Um, He ends up finding another woman. He marries her. And he has another kid. So he has a total of four kids, three from his first marriage and one from his second.
0: Right. So here we are. We're 19 years out. They've both uh, moved on. Mark and Melinda have these completely separate lives. They are not pen pals anymore. And at this point, I think you could argue two ways on this. So is it that they murdered David together? They both did. And then after it happened, they they were so ashamed. They couldn't be around the other person because they reminded them of this darkness.
1: Or they didn't commit the murder.
0: They didn't commit the murder, but that the shock of the murder having happened, it made them reconsider their lives. And they decided that they didn't want to be part of the other person's life, that there wasn't, that wasn't as as special as they saw it.
1: All those letters for nothing.
0: I would also think that if they didn't do, if they didn't do it, that also losing David might have been too painful. Say there was a spark there. Yeah. But like if there had been a little spark between them, it's like, no, now we really have to honor this person who died that we loved. But it could have been too painful. Yeah. And we would never be together. And if it felt dangerous, like right. we do kind of like each other, I could see where like for, in David dies and memory, you say, you in honor of David, I would, yeah, I would never I just, be near you. Or I would never be near you because I don't want to look guilty. Yeah. I mean, there's because a if, lot of reasons Because if they had gotten why. together
1: right after that murder... I think it would only. What would the community yeah, have said then? Totally.
0: Would he have gotten the pioneer?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I. I think maybe he would have. I don't know that. I, I. What I will say is, I. It just feels really sad. It's been nineteen years.
0: It's two thousand one. Something exciting is happening in a Kansas crime lab, which is that they just got a shipment of a bunch of brand new shiny equipment, including some DNA testing technology that,
1: you know, it's been 19 years. Like I said, it's come a long way. I yes, imagine Carrie, you're raising I your raise hand. My hand just because I wanted to say something in between. I didn't want to interrupt you. I just imagine this crime lab gets all up. Do you ever get like a new thing and you're like, oh, I want to try it so many times. And they get so excited from this new forensic thing that they're going, who has more DNA? Who has more DNA? Let's add it to this. Oh, you got something. You got a cold case. Let's add it to it. Like, it feels like they got a new toy and they're just looking for DNA to put through.
0: Yeah, they want to book some people. So it's this new generation of detectives and they're like, let's test it. Let's test it. And a couple of Kansas detectives, Bill Wall and Steve James, great detective names, guys, they send the crime lab a vacuum bag Yes, it's that vacuum bag bag. from Mark's house, and they want to see if, could that blood have actually been David Harmon's blood? Because back then, they didn't have the technology to confirm that. So they reopen the case to get this
1: tested. Yeah, but that's not all they want to do. They also want to start the investigation from the very beginning. They want to do all the interviews. They want to look at all of the evidence. They want to see if they can put together a case, right? So Detective Wallen James asks the DA if they can fly out to Ohio to talk to Melinda, the only eyewitness to this case, And while they wait for the DNA results from that vacuum bag. And the DA at the time, Paul Morrison, he actually remembers this case very well because he was on the scene of David Harmon's murder. And that Mm -hmm. image... Has not left him. He he recalls no. it as being the most brutal crime scene he's ever seen, and again, those images do not leave your mind. And he said he gives him the go ahead, but he is certainly not convinced that Melinda is going to talk to them, let alone give any new information. But right, because she's not compelled totally, to. Right, they it's have the, no it's the kind of
0: thing where exactly. And he's probably like eh. She was pretty, you know, uh, you know, not that helpful probably at day one. He probably didn't love the story she told. Um, and he probably writes that he's her off as then- –
1: Yeah, he's, she's suspect number one and two. I don't know whichever – you know, one or two, either one. Yeah. So he's not looking like this – it's not looking promising for him. But there they go. They're going to the but suburbs it's like of Ohio. But like you said –
0: yeah, because I think that, like you said, that image doesn't leave you. And if Paul Morrison remembers this case and remembers seeing how badly David was beat, he probably has that part of his heartstrings that get tugged. Where yeah. he says, "It does feel like crap well, that no one ever served time for this guy's death." And you know what? She's not going to say anything, but I'm not going to be the guy that that could stopping uh, this
1: from going on. I mean, yeah, I also, exactly. We've been talking primarily about. Melinda and Mark, his best friends. But I want to be very clear, because we haven't mentioned it yet, is that David has a family who loves him. He has people mm-hmm. in his life who miss him, who love him dearly. And they deserve closure. They deserve they to know who would They didn't see any justice. On. Exactly. They didn't see any justice or closure.
0: Well, against all odds, they fly out there to talk to Melinda, and they're like, can we talk to you? I think they probably ask like that and expecting her to be like,
1: Nope. No, bye.
0: But guess what? She She's says
1: like, "Come on in. Oh, sure. The water's come on in. great.
0: Yeah. Do you want me to make you a tea, a coffee?" So they're like, "Can you just? I'm so sorry to bring up a sore subject. Can you just remind us what happened that night that your husband was beaten to death?" And she starts to tell them a story about waking up to one. Pay attention. One white. Man, this makes me so in a mad. mask
1: this makes me so mad. Beating
0: David, and that she ran to the bathroom and hid. And so she says this to them, and I don't know if she clocks it, but they are stunned because this is not the story that she told no. twenty years ago, and it's it's not even about getting a detail wrong, like I I had a watch on or I didn't or I. I, what color the, the whole bedding was. The event
1: is different. The whole she said it was two
0: black guys. Which I get she ran down the hall, not into the bathroom. And in this version of the story, I forgot to say, she completely omits the part about the bank key, like the whole motive for these intruders.
1: It makes my skin crawl. It makes me see red that. In the initial report, she claims it was two black men who came in and beat mm-hmm. her husband. And I want to be very clear. The the racial makeup of Olathe, Kansas, where this crime took place, is predominantly white. Okay? What yeah. is so scary to me is that if how many – like, how far did they go into profiling these, quote, intruders – and of course. people could have been killed. People could have been been profiled incorrectly. Like the the amount of racism, the amount of blatant racism coming out of her mouth at that time makes me sick. Makes me nauseous. I just again, uh, I just it makes me see red. It makes me very upset. Because not only did she tell a lie, but she told she told a lie that could also hurt others. Mm-hmm. I mean. And also preying on the fear, right? I mean, she of of others, because again, this is a predominantly white community. She says, hmm, who can I blame? Oh, two black men. Come on. Yeah it's sick. They'll like that story. It's sick. And so obviously, I think the detectives at this time are shocked, but also they're thrilled. They have some more information, or rather they have different information, which is more information. Mm -hmm. And so then they start to inquire about those love letters that they found at Mark's apartment. And instead of denying the affair like before, Melinda confesses that she and Mark had a romantic relationship. She tells the police that Mark would say things like, you know, if you weren't married, maybe we'd end up together. And Melinda claims that her religious beliefs prevented them from acting on anything, from, um, Acting on this infatuation. She claims that they never had sex, they didn't kiss, but that what they had was an emotional affair. And I just, again, I had mentioned it earlier, but in this religion, divorce was a big no no. It was out of the question. And so the only way out and into a new relationship was if your partner was dead, which again, I just want to highlight that Mark did go on to get a divorce later in his life. So that irony is not lost on me. But because of these like strict religious rules that they had, I guess maybe this adds more motive to that this love affair would lead to a murder.
0: Yeah. So after this interview, this wacky interview with Melinda, this shocking interview, they call District Attorney Paul Morrison, and they're like, Paul, guess what? Guess what just happened? And he is also just blown away that they got all this, that Melinda even agreed to speak to them and then said all these things. And that all the things she was saying were confirming the theory that they had. So they're like, Melinda, we're going to actually need you to sit down for a formal interview at the police station.
1: What's crazy to me is we talked about how they spent like 2,200 hours. They had 300 interviews. My question, did they interview Melinda twice? (laughs) Like, did they just interview her the (laughs) one time? It feels like Melinda has been sitting here the last 19 years as she's gotten married, had kids, lived a life, just thinking about this. And if someone had asked her again, maybe, just maybe she would have revealed this a bit earlier. It feels like she's just sitting here waiting for someone to ask her. And then she just sings like a canary. I
0: do. What I really wonder is when she was telling them this second version of the story, did she know how badly she messed it up? Because (laughs) it is really crazy to me that If you're going to lie to the police about a murder you had a hand in,
1: it feels like even the
0: lie should be very – well, the lie should be very clear in your head. And I just can't believe that she, in 20 years, was like, what did I tell you last time? Was it, I don't know, one guy, a white guy? Oh, I told you two black? Like, that is so wild to me. So they get her on tape once they bring her to the police station Saying this different story, and then they're calling her out on it, saying, You know, it's not what you told us. And here's the thing your story's really changed. We think it was you or Mark. And when they say that, you know what she says? I think she hears them giving her an option. Like, I don't think Melinda's that bright. She hears it was you or Mark, she goes, guess you know what, what she picked? I think
1: it's actually oh, Mark. Mark. It's
0: for sure Mark. Okay, you it's Mark. Okay, then it's Mark.
1: If it's between me or Mark, and I'm not biased here. I know it's me. If it's between me or Mark, and, and again, I'm coming from an unbiased place. I have nothing to gain from this, but I'm going to say Mark. Mark. <laughs> so she tells them,
0: she t- she doesn't say flat out, Mark did this. What she's, Because again, I think she's still in a path of... Half lies. So she says, you know, I couldn't see the person's face that did it, but it did. It, it felt like it was Mark. And then she tells the detectives, "In my heart, I knew it was him." You couldn't,
1: but see she's the face. Still? I'm sorry, you couldn't see the face of the people coming in yet. Before you said they were black. How dare you? How dare you? I'm. Well, it's all over the
0: place. But now, now that she's cornered, she's very willing to throw Mark under the bus. I mean, and are we surprised no. she was somebody that let her husband get beaten to death next to her?
1: I don't know if I would. I don't actually. I don't know if I would say she let him get beat next to her because, again, at this point, we. Do, I think that's like we don't know what happened. we don't know what happened. You're but right. like, I wouldn't say happened. that. But I would say this: she had more information about her husband's murder, and if she knew in her heart it was their friend Mark, she didn't speak up earlier, and she could have. If. If it was her friend Mark, don't you think she would want justice against the murder of her husband? No, she yeah, just. It depends
0: if they were in on it together mm-hmm. or not. And I think that the police still very much think that they were. Yeah. So when they hear her say, "In my heart, I knew it was Mark," I don't think that they're exonerating her at this point. It's but she still not. is denying having any involvement. Well, in she David's is the murder.
1: least believable person at this point. Her story has changed how many times? In the made-for-TV movie of this, they would have arrested Melinda right away, but that's just not how investigations work. So the police spend the next two years working on this case, compiling evidence, getting more information, and in December 2003, they arrest Melinda on charges of first-degree murder. A few months later, they would indict Mark for murder. Now, again, Melinda's made a whole life in the suburbs of Ohio, and her neighbor's Pretty surprised, I would say. This woman is the woman they've seen at parent meetings, at, like, student-kid events. I mean, this is yeah. shocking. And even the people that knew her back in 1982 in Olathe, they're surprised, too. I mean, she was – she was. everybody loved her. In fact, like, her dad is, like, really big in the Nazarene church. So she had, like, a little bit of, like, cachet around her as well. So this is a surprise uh-huh. to everyone who knows Melinda However, except for David Harmon's parents, David's parents have always suspected that she was involved in his murder. And I think they're getting the light, there's a light at the end of the tunnel for them for the closure for their son's murder. Melinda, of course, pleads not guilty to the charges and she's held on a $300,000 bond, which she's able to pay. So if that Puts you into perspective, sort of the monetary place that she's at at the time. Her husband's a dentist, a cosmetic one too.
0: Right. So now it's April two thousand five, and obviously Melinda, she's it's a not lot looking of good. because it's not looking good. <laughs> she's changed the story a bunch, and she said to the police in the interrogation in regards to it being Mark. I had a bad feeling. I'm a person. I'm very sensitive. I know you think I'm terrible, but I'm not. I
1: don't know if and I would just, believe like, if you watched, her opinion of herself. Did you see
0: that, though? No, I did Like, didn't. I watched that clip of her, and it was so uh, – yeah, it's impossible to like her is what I'm going to say. It, 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 I do think you're a well, terrible person, and I don't there, believe you, Melinda. In her
1: confession, from what I recall, she's pretty smug, and she feels powerful in a way, right? She has this, like, it's nothing It's almost can like she thinks me. there's
0: a statute of limitations yes, because yes, it totally. has this feeling of, like – Look, we can talk about this, but then I'm really going to have to get back I have to go pick to up the
1: kids. I got to go. I really have a lot of stuff to yes. do. This is, is like, really bothering me in the middle of the day. And
0: the idea that she's like, I don't know. Do you expect me to remember all the details yeah. correctly from that day? Yeah, your
1: husband and was murdered like, next to you. Yeah, we'd expect at least them to be the same.
0: <laughs> so wild. Believe it or not, even though she's accusing Mark, Mark gets put on the stand in her defense trial And he does help in the sense that he's going to deny that they had any kind of relationship. He denies that he killed David, but he's going to get cross-examined. It doesn't make him look great either. Mark actually is indicted for the murder of David three days before he gives testimony on her case. So... If people Which know I this think, guy is being indicted for yes, the murder I think, and then he's getting put on the stand, they're not like, well, that guy's impartial. Let's listen to what he has to I say. It almost shouldn't even be allowed. Yeah. Like, who cares? I think
1: from a prosecutorial standpoint, it's pretty smart because he's speaking in her defense. And so the prosecutor is going to preemptively discredit his testimony by indicting him for murder three days before he's giving his testimony. I think that's mm-hmm. – I mean, I, I don't know how legal that is, but I got to say – that does seem like a advantageous move on it's the prosecutor's move. part.
0: Yeah, and the narrative that the prosecution is promoting is they were having an affair, and that this was this very highly religious community where, yeah, it was it was better to, if you wanted out of the marriage, just like you said, Carrie, the only way is out is Fred's less <laughs> murder. <laughs> yes, is through murder because divorce is not an option. And just in in trying to understand the. Oh, God. It's very hard to trace, I know, the stories that Melinda tells because there are many of them, but we've gotten now away from these strange black men to a white man to a white man that looked an awful lot like Mark. That in her heart, she we move knows it's as Mark. far, but we move even further from yeah. in my heart, I know, to I, in fact, because we planned it, went to my back door and at two in the morning and unlocked it for Mark. Mark came in. I watched him approach Dave. I watched him with a crowbar beat Dave. After he was done beating Dave, we had a conversation. He then punched me in the face as per our plan to make it look like I had avoided an attack as well. And then that whisper that you spoke about, at the funeral, where, every, where a couple people kind of speculated because they saw Mark go up and whisper something to Melinda, Melinda now says, well, I'll tell you what he said to me. He whispered to me that he had
1: gotten rid of the crowbar, the murder weapon, which, again, was never found. And then to top it all off, this like crazy plan, premeditated murder, both of them having a part in his death, the two of them just separate. What? I'm still. Afterwards. That is shocking what in the to me. World. That just doesn't. It. It's so You're crazy. You're so
0: in love that you had to kill this guy to be together. And, and then, then as nothing, soon as he was dead, nothing. you weren't even together. I, I mean, I'm not to say that would have justified the murder. I really don't Absolutely want to sound not. like I'm no. like, what a waste. But I am saying I don't buy it. I am saying I, I know that I might be alone here. And this is totally speculative. But for me, this story still doesn't add up, and Melinda is still a selfish and unreliable narrator from
1: where I stand, and I think she killed him. I will say about the killing, what's tough is I don't, I'm not, I, I haven't watched as much Dexter as you have, but I will say the blood splatter is a tough. Spatter. Spatter, blood spatter. So sorry. Spatter. trust. I trust. Again, I'm not Dexter. I never claimed to be. <laughs> um, I know. I really watched all of it. I think what's hard about that though is the blood spatter does tell a story that she stood away from this where I think if she was the one doing it she th-
0: could have been standing right over him for what the the you blood think spatter says. My that's my understanding. That's okay. my understanding that she was standing by the bed. I think and so what we, I say if if I can make a conjecture yeah. is that I'm trying to look at all the pieces of this puzzle and I am trying to say here was this What we know is that here was – they were getting closer and that Mark may or may not have said, if only you weren't married. Then her husband ended up beaten to death and dead. The first person she called was Mark. But guess who was not by her side shortly afterwards? Mark. Mark. It just doesn't make sense. To all the trouble of killing David to then not even try to have a relationship with Melinda, or did Melinda kill her husband and then go, see, I'm available, Mark, and then surprise, surprise, he was like, I'm actually good, and took
1: some slow, backward steps. Yeah, I would not. I don't know. I would not want to enter a relationship with someone who is capable of murdering their husband. Just just that, pro that's tip on your your list. Pro tip. Did that's, you put that on hinge? I did. I absolutely did. I if you've Good. murdered a partner, I do not please do not write in. Do not swipe left. Right. Do not collect me from Go. Anyway, um <laughs> <laughs> that made no sense, but here we are. Um well I will say the jury agrees with you in that. She's found guilty of first-degree murder in May of 2005, and she is staring down the barrel of a life sentence in prison. But she's not done trying to negotiate a way to save herself from prison time. I'm telling you, this woman is clinging. Melinda has been convicted of first-degree murder. Now it's Mark's turn. Mark Mangelsdorf is slated to stand trial for the murder of David Harmon starting in fall of 2005. And while he's waiting, you know what he does, Quinn? He decides what? to give a little interview with the New York Times from his home in Prestigious. Pelham, New York City. Yes, from Pelham, New York. Yes, from live from Pelham, New York. It's Mark Mangelsdorf with the New York <laughs> Times. I don't know who approved this interview, but I'm going to give you some brief highlights from this interview. So Mark's married again. It's his second wife, um, Christina. And, and she's pregnant. She's pregnant, you know, and this has to be pretty darn stressful. You know, your husband's standing trial for murder. Not not mm-hmm. a great look. Seems pretty stressful. When they ask Christina, how are you feeling about it? She says, you know, I was always a big mystery buff and Agatha Christie fan. And now I'm a living one.
0: Golly. What part? Golly, Christina. Christina.
1: Christina. Christina girl. What a soundbite. What, <laughs> yeah. what a what a soundbite. I don't know if this is I don't know if this is doing what you want it to do. It's not making us feel worried <laughs> about you. I, I worry about you, Christina. I, I I do. I really worry about you in this moment.
0: It feels like she's not necessarily landed in a place where she's taking this seriously that her husband might go to
1: jail. She's pregnant. They have a kid. Like what? I hope that for her pregnancy, maybe she's going, you know what, actually, I... Let's just live in la-la land, which, you know what, I actually, I'm all for and might help her pregnancy. Less stress is always a good thing. Mark, however, is maintaining his innocence, and he actually tells the reporters, though, that, you know, he's always been worried about David Harmon's murder coming back to bite him in the ass. He says, I knew there was no statute of limitations on murder, There's a little bit of, okay, now the game is on. I was no longer wondering or anticipating if something was going to happen. Now the real show begins. To which I say, Who the hell are these Jamokes publicists and lawyers? What are they doing? What are you doing? What are they doing? Do you know the the way that he's
0: speaking about this? Yeah, it is so so chill, it is
1: so calm.
0: And, like, the idea that he wouldn't just be, like, saying something about, like, yeah, I lost my dear, dear friend years ago. This was horrible, and I get that I might have to do this because it's about finding justice. I'm innocent. Like, saying any of those things instead, he's like, ah, the game is afoot. And I'm like, what are you talking
1: about? Or he could have publicly said something like... I just, like, I'm thinking of, like, what he could have said that was better, where he could have been, like, I've always known Melissa was involved. but I No comment. No comment. Hey, let's not (laughs) do the interview with the New York Times. would have been a smart You know what's so easy to do? No comment. Not do the interview. But he could have even, even if he wanted to, he could have waged an attack on Melinda and been, like – from jump, he could have said, this woman's story has changed. I always suspected. After this murder, I left. She and I were really good friends. I had a bad feeling. There's so many things he could have he said. He does the opposite. He does, he does the exact does sort of defend her? Opposite. It's In fact, at one point, he's asked if he thinks Melinda might accuse him of murder. And then he tells the New York Times, quote, I wouldn't have a real strong friendship with someone off kilter, off the deep end. Melinda was happy-go-lucky. I want to bang I mean, my head on this desk. Mark. I, Mark, you are a really,
0: really bad judge of character. You were a bad judge of character 20 years ago. You are a bad judge of character now you know because it feels like, Melinda, Quinn? I think, is a bad guy. Can I Spoiler tell you, though, what alert. I
1: feel about this, though, is it feels a little bit like, okay, I'm no, whatever, I'm just going to say it. We found out that he was a suspect in this murder a, m- a couple months after the murder happened and then he went on to win this pioneer image award he was lauded by the student body it feels he like he just doesn't this, understand
0: how the world yes, works
1: it feels like uh he's like he's just had so much privilege whether it be pretty privi- whether it be pretty privilege um whatever harvard it is, harvard like new york times he's, is calling for the interview yes, he's he like has everybody loves me. It's all so of this weird. stuff where it feels mm-hmm. like he's never had to face a consequence for a day in his life. And this is this is what's coming from it.
0: Well, here's what I would say. Two big mistakes. Thinking you're never going to have to face up to a consequence is one. And thinking that your girlfriend Melinda ever had your back. That's another big mistake. Because here's the thing about Melinda. She's in it for Melinda. And all they need to give her is an incentive, which they do. After they find her guilty of first-degree murder, she and D.A. Paul Morrison have a talk, and he's like, here's the thing. I can give you a lesser sentence. I can give you second-degree if you will testify against your buddy, Mark. And she's like, where
1: do I sign? They're giving a liar an incentive to lie. We know this woman has lied time and time and time and time and time again, and here they are going, hey, let's dangle a lesser sentence. That feels ethically so messed.
0: Oh, yeah. And she'll be eligible for parole in five years. I mean, it's nothing that she'll have to do. And so eventually, guess who's going to find out that she signed the papers?
1: Mark. And boy, does he probably feel like a bit of a ding dong at this point, you know, yeah, He's just gone on the New York Times saying, she's pretty happy-go-lucky. And then all of a sudden, the chickens <laughs> are coming home to roost and he's going, oh, crap. What Mm -hmm. is going to happen? And his lawyer goes into full damage control. He, I mean, like us, it's pretty clear that Melinda is not a reliable narrator. And he says her motive is absolutely transparent. He says people living under a rock in Uganda could answer why she is changing her story now. She wants to get out of jail. It's disturbing and confounding. And on the night of the murder, she told story A. Some years later, it was story B. And now story C. I'm going to tell you, there's going to be a D-E-F-G-H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O-P for all I know about it. Yeah.
0: She's a real (laughs) B. It's it's like a really big problem also just in the criminal justice system that a convict can get their own (laughs) sentence lessened if they implicate somebody else. Because to incentivize that so greatly is to beg people to lie. (laughs) Especially a
1: person who's already been on record as lying.
0: Yeah, she's she's like, you just want me to keep doing what I always do, but I get paid in time for it? Great. I would love to. And so Mark is at this point, maybe for the first time in his life, shaking, not so confident, boots. just not confident. Like, he's like, ooh, I, I don't know if I'm going to get an acquittal here suddenly. And guess who shows up on his doorstep? Paul Morrison, the DA. And he's like, here's the thing willing to give you the exact same deal Belinda got, which is to say, if you admit to this crime, I will give you second-degree murder. Also, you will be eligible for parole in only five years. That is and so a here's,
1: hard thing to I weigh. I mean, it's
0: crazy because at this point, we now, we cannot say to ourselves one way or another, you can, you can decide if you think Mark is guilty or not, but what you all know for sure is that, is that Quinn there's does not, not a think lot he of is. people... <laughs> no, I'm just I, I I'm not saying I know Melinda is. I know I don't Melinda's. know about Mark, but I know that him saying he was guilty was so very clearly in order to get this deal. Well, I
1: again, I mean, it's go, a really go to trial thing. and
0: maybe get acquitted. Like there's no you know, way he would have been. I'm curious, he would have gotten life.
1: I'm curious about his attorney though, because I'd be curious if her testimony would hold water. If it's a jury trial, you're you're just banking on twelve people's personalities. And whether they're going to believe Melinda is a liar or not. And it's do you take that risk and risk life in prison versus being eligible for parole in five years. I can't imagine how difficult that was. And I can imagine Christina is not a big fan of Agatha Christie anymore. You know, I'm going to tell you that much. I don't know if she's still an avid reader. Maybe she's going to write a tell-all. I don't know. I it's I don't <laughs> it is it is it is wild. I mean I yeah it's like do you do you take the gamble and go to court or do you take this plea deal? I don't know what I would do. Oh, I would take the I would take the deal any day you because would, even if that, you know for sure. Yes, you didn't because do I it. think
0: Yes, because I think the narrative that they have against him is really strong. And right. I think that uh I think Melinda is such a wild card and you just don't know, but uh you, they don't have the murder weapon, and it's now – it it it's also, been 20 I, years. It's really hard for them to have, like, a ton of evidence there's against such, him. But there's
1: such an opportunity for reasonable doubt. That all depends on who the jury is, totally. I would say. Yeah. So I think, like, yeah, so you would take the deal every, even if you didn't do it with all this information. Well, he did take the he deal. Did. They both got their deal. She served nine years. He, he served, served ten. ten. He served lo- more time than she did. I mean – We've talked about this so much, which is to say like, yeah, I mean, I think she for sure, I think she was the mastermind behind all of this. I think this was her idea. I think this was her execution. I think all of that. Him, I feel like, yeah, he admitted it. So by all accounts, he is guilty based on the plea deal. He has admitted guilt. But I do question the full involvement of him in this.
0: Yeah, I don't know the answer. I really don't. I could see a world where it was her and she said, I did this, now we can be together. And he was then, you know, that he knew and he didn't do anything. I could see a world where she's the one in control and she puppet mastered him Mm -hmm. of do this to be with me. He did. And then he had immediate regret. And then he either had immediate regret or she was like, I don't know if I could be with a killer. Like, I could see her, like, pulling one of those as well. So either way, though, I agree with you that I do think the person pulling all the strings in this case was Melinda. And she lied from the moment the police arrived to the moment she was going to jail for it. Right. Based on a different lie. Right. And – I I don't know if if you can really say justice was served in this case either, because at the end of the day, this young, young man with so much possibility who was so uh by, by all by accounts, his kind and yeah. loved by his community and his family, he lost his life for clearly for no nothing. good reason. For nothing. And for nothing. And really, these people really got to live very full lives before they served any time at all. And then when they did, it really wasn't that much time.
1: I just, I can't imagine the two of them had lives and kids after this and the damage of what they did in their 20s and coming to roost 20 years later after all the lives they affected. And for David's
0: parents to have to watch the two of them yeah, and see Melinda get to raise these kids and and you know, Mark had yeah. to raise his and David didn't get to have any. Yeah. And it feels like cold comfort. But, um, you know, let us know what you think. If if you guys have any thoughts about this case or any questions. Please let us
1: know if you think that I want to know if you what you think Mark's involvement is in this. That's what I want to know what you think. And I want to know what you're wearing. No. <laughs> So please, please use the need- hashtag Crime of a Lifetime on all your social media and tell us what you think and we're looking forward to our next case next week.
0: Touch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful were the following. An article from the New York Times entitled In a Limbo of Another Kind by Merrick Fuchs. Reporting from the Kansas City Star. A documentary from Snapped entitled I'd Kill for You. And the Lifetime documentary Killer in Plain Sight. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins.
1: Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner. And Carrie Epema.
0: Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, a Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.